This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Well, with a population of over 1.3 billion, the second largest on the planet, India has a unique position as an emerging economy. India went through incredible population growth between the mid-1970s and 2010, and it's now seen as a country of uh, very high importance for many countries to partner with on various elements of trade. We've already seen some U.S. retailers take a deeper dive, companies like Walmart and Amazon showing their interest, but where is the India-U.S. relationship headed? Marshall Bhutan is a well-known expert on India, the economy, and its place and importance in Asia, but also in the world. He's director of the Center for Advanced Study of India, based here at the University of Pennsylvania. He joins me in the studio, along with Mukul Pandya, who is a Knowledge Award and Editor-in-Chief. Marshall, great seeing you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. McCool, great to see you. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here. So where do you see the relationship between the U.S. and India right now? Well, I think it's come off an extraordinary 20 years. Uh, The relationship in those 20 years since 1998 has been transformed almost beyond recognition. In fact, I'd like to say that no U.S. bilateral relationship in the world, certainly with another major country, has changed as much and for the good as has the U.S.-India relationship. And that's across all fronts, uh, but primarily in the security and defense areas. That's where where the most dramatic progress has been. Uh, and economic relations, also great progress. Huge increase in the, in the bilateral trade volumes, uh, mostly with the, U, with the U.S. holding a deficit, which uh, uh, this administration is not happy about, but it, can, it continues for now. Um, FDI into India, uh, as you've already alluded to, is, has, from the U.S. has gone up very sharply. Um, it's still a fraction of uh, U.S. FDI, both in terms of flows and stock. Uh, from uh, that of, say, China, um, not to mention the developed countries in Europe. Uh, so that all is a strong portent for the future, for a positive, continuing positive trajectory. However, changes in policy, uh, particularly in the U.S., but also in India over the last year or two, uh, cause some or cause for some worry. Uh, Prime Minister Modi has moved in somewhat more protectionist directions with his economic policy. Uh, nobody knows what he'll do uh, if uh, he's reelected come next April, May. Um, one hopes he backtracks on that, uh, but we can't be sure. Uh, you wrote a really interesting paper at, in the Asia Society's Policy Institute. Mm in May 2017. And you recommended there that the Trump administration should make India a clear and strategic uh, diplomatic priority. Uh, In the year that has gone by, do you think that has happened? Short answer, yes. Um, And I give the Trump administration a lot of credit for moving rapidly, especially on the security and defense aspects of the relationship um, with the approval of the sale of the Sea Guardian aerial uh, vehicles, um, but also the most recent agreement between the U.S. and India, which will allow data sharing over secure channels between the two militaries directly. That's that's quite extraordinary. We're really getting close to our relationships with, the, with our NATO allies. Um, 
the the there has been one summit between the president and uh, Prime Minister Modi. Prime Minister Modi invited President Trump to to come to Delhi in January and be the chief guest at uh, India's Republic Day, which, the, for all I know, the president has not yet accepted. Um, I'm concerned about the pace of connections between the two of them. Um, these are two very strong leaders who have a potential to do a lot together, but they have to be able to spend some time with each other. Um, the the uh, So far, the administration's policies, uh, it's more America first, if you will, mercantilist policies, have not taken a heavy toll in the, in the actual conduct of U.S.-India economic relations. Uh, uh, as I said earlier, FDI remains uh, pretty strong. Uh, the trade relationship is about the same as it was a couple of years ago. Uh, but one begins to have some niggling worries about where it might be going from here. Uh, what are some of those worries? Well, as I said earlier, I, th- I think the principal worry is two on, bo- on both sides. One is that at some point the Trump administration will, will actually uh, put into place uh, hard policies, on, particularly on trade. Uh, the other related area that is concerned to many Indians, of course, is H-1B visas. Right. Um, uh, so far, uh, we're seeing some uh, – the administration has taken an approach where it's, it's indirectly trying to influence the number of H-1B visitors by making it impossible for their spouses to stay in the United States, by uh, not approving many more continuing employment visas – uh, if they really double down on that kind of effort, then we could see some real damage. Uh, on the Indian side, as I mentioned, the, the prime minister has moved in some more protectionist directions, which yeah. I'm sure are concerned uh, of concern to U.S. companies. So uh, we'll just have to wait and see. We got, you know, we got a political season here and a political <laughs> season coming up very soon in India, and that that causes a little bit of craziness on both sides. It, it is amazing to me sitting back here and, and looking at and seeing some of the things that have that have developed within India over the last few years, and to see the growth and, and to to still have it referred to at times as kind of an emerging economy because of the fact the numbers of people that are there. But then when you hear about the fact that you still have, you know, large portions of the country that still need to be electrified, you need to still bring a lot of services to that country. You do understand that that there is still a long way to go for India to be truly a transformative economy. No question. I mean, the real the real question is whether India can be in the next ten or fifteen years the next ten trillion dollar economy. Mm-hmm. That would be a great, very momentous for the world for the world economy in particular. Um, but yes, they have a lot of problems, and uh, the problems haven't they aren't going away fast. A lot of people expected Prime Minister Modi in his first term to adopt a number of more of liberalizing policies, a second wave of big structural reforms, particularly on the supply side, mm-hmm. on land and labor especially. Uh, but he hasn't done that. He's done taking the more politically safe course. Uh, and they, he's certainly not taking that course right now, that, that the more uh, adventurous course right now. For the people that don't follow it as closely, well, I mentioned about companies like Walmart and Amazon mm-hmm. with, with Flipkart, and, and mm-hmm. I, that's one example. Mm-hmm. But why do you think it, it has taken this long seemingly to see this type of push on, on FDI going into going into India? 
Well, the policies weren't conducive. The regulations weren't conducive. We all remember it was only two or three years ago that India ranked something like 138 on the World Bank uh, Index of Ease of Doing Business. It's come up a lot, and most recently it's come up just, just announced a few days ago by the World Bank, it's come up another 23 points and I think is now, you know, around 100. So that was understandable. But it is also indicative that most of this, you know, headline stuff about Amazon and and other retailers, Walmart, of course, uh, going into India, these are sectors, the retail sector is which which is very, is one in which there's very light regulation overall Mm -hmm. compared to the manufacturing sector. The ease of, especially in the digital age, the ease of moving into India uh, with, and the retail sector is far greater. And uh, when you start to see American companies investing in manufacturing in India or in logistics or in infrastructure, then you can sit up and take notice. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney in our studios here in Philadelphia, along with Mukul Pande, who is the editor-in-chief of Knowledge at Wharton, and also joining us, Marshall Bhutan, who is a director of the Center for the Advanced Study of India, as we talk about India as part of the uh, Wharton India Economic Forum here on the University of Pennsylvania campus today. So I was very interested in what you just said about the closeness that has developed between India and the U.S. on the defense side. Mm-hmm. A part of it, of course, it's, it's very true that India has been buying more and more of uh, U.S. defense products, but it's also shopping very actively around the world for defense uh, products. Some of these deals have been somewhat controversial, notably the one with France for the 36 fighter jets. Mm-hmm. Um, my question for you is, uh, given the political season that we are entering, uh, do you think the deal with uh, with the um, salt on the Rafale jets mm-hmm. will make Mr. Modi as vulnerable as, say, the Beaufort deals, Beaufort's deal was to Rahul Gandhi in the past? What's your assessment of the situation? Yeah, I would guess not. Um, I think that... that um, that, I mean, first of all, the, the Modi administration rightly has a uh, an excellent reputation for greatly avoiding reducing the amount of corruption, especially at the top. You know, at in the prime minister's office, in the cabinet, in the government of India, um, you know, lower down, there's probably still some going on. So I think he's not very vulnerable on those corruption issues at some point if some you know shocking details come to light about the the Rafael fighter deal or others then then people might reassess but i don't think it's going to be an issue this time but the the, the big issue on defense acquisitions is the russian sale of the s400 mm-hmm. anti missile uh-huh. uh anti aerial anti aircraft missile system uh, which was just at least nominally approved when President Putin visited India in, in early October. This has a potential to be a great disruptor of the U.S.-India relationship because yeah. it runs afoul of the sanctions on Russia placed there by Congress just a year ago. Um, it's a terrible acronym. It's something like CATSA. Mm-hmm. Um which requires the U.S. to sanction any entities in the world that that engage in major uh, trans- uh, transactions with with Russia, and uh, looking like the president will will impose those sanctions. So, Russia is Russia still the biggest supplier of arms to India, and 
What do you think will be the impact of this on the closeness that's been developing on the defense and security? Well, that's side? exactly my concern. I think it like, would impact not only the U.S.-India defense relationship, but also the India-U.S. economic relationship. Right. Because it will sanction Indian financial entities from, from dealing with, you know, dealing with U.S. banks, you know, moving money, just the very the basic stuff. Um, and no, yes, the, the, Russia is still the principal, in the aggregate, the principal supplier by value. But that's partly just legacy stuff from the past because you know, India is determined to retain its sovereignty uh, and to make its decisions about its national interests based only on those national interests and not on the wishes of another uh, government. Um, and that's, this is a, a recurrent problem in U.S.-India relations, which we moved away from but could be coming back. And that is when you have the United States um, setting global policies yeah. that affect around the world and you, you, our allies, we can expect to fall in line. India is not an ally. And for the foreseeable future, will will not be an ally of the United States. Uh, but, but does that, <clears throat> and with that relationship between the U.S. and India, if it does continue to go stronger, there would probably be an assumption that we could consider India an ally. And obviously, part of that is maybe you know uh, stopping that uh, that, that mm -hmm. partnership with Russia. But it, there is the possibility that they could be considered an ally down the road, right? Well, there's a possibility. I wouldn't hold your breath. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, India has long, you know, it comes from the colonial past and India's, India's absolute determination to be self-determining as a nation. Yeah. Um, and plus, India's interests in some, some areas are different from those in the United States. It's, uh, and the circumstances that led to the creation of our post-World War II uh, alliances are not the same. They may be someday. Um, frankly, the key to that would be what, how China develops in China's relationships with the U.S. and India. Uh, and none of us wishes for the kind of confrontation that would produce a situation in which an alliance would be thought of on both sides because they would be pretty dire. I'm very glad you mentioned China because uh, that was just what I was going to ask you about. Uh, what do you think uh, are the chances of the U.S.? favoring an expanding role for India in, in Asia overall. Uh, do you think India is responding adequately to China's One Belt, One Road initiative, or even more importantly, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor project? Mm -hmm. uh, what should be India doing to respond, and what should be American role vis-a-vis uh, -vis India in these, in these situations? Well, going back to Hillary Clinton's time as Secretary of State, and even in some respects before that, you know, the United States has actually been urging India, encouraging India, even occasionally attempting to push India a little bit to take a more active role in the Asia-Pacific, what used to be called the Asia-Pacific region. Um, India, the, the, the key turning point was a meeting between Prime Minister Modi uh, and President Obama, uh, I think it was 2010, something like that, uh, where they signed a joint statement uh, on a vision of the Asia-Pacific. That was a very, very positive move in this direction. It's a statement of principle. It's not a statement of actual policy and actions. Mm -hmm. um, and so the U.S. has opened up its, uh, its defense storehouse to India, partly with that in mind. Um, India has 
been cautious about this, and most recently, for instance, uh, India withdrew from the so-called quad exercises, which bring together the U.S., Japan, Australia, and India. Uh, India chose not to do that in order not to provoke China. So India is playing a, a very cautious role, and I would say right now even more cautious. They look at President Trump's uh, mercurial nature uh, and somewhat contradictory policies and statements, and um, they're a little concerned about how this might work for them. So they're not going to give up their independence of action. Longer term, there's no question that India is going to be more active in the Asia-Pacific. It has to be for its own interest. And in fact, we now call this so-called Asia-Pacific region is now the Indo-Pacific region. That's official <laughs> policy in the United States. The uh, next year, India faces, you refer to the fact that India is facing a parliamentary election next year. And in your paper last uh, in May, you had uh, mentioned that you thought Mr. Modi was uh, very likely to win. Is that still your assessment or do you ha have, have your views changed? Uh, it's still my assessment, provided you take out the very. Okay. I think he is still <laughs> likely to win. Um, he's um, he's the only um, politician in all of India on the national stage who can command attention and audience. Um, and he has an ex supremely efficient and extensive political operation that's never stopped running, you know, right down to the polling place. Um, right. uh, I was in India last in July, and, you know, the talk then was still very, very much weighted on the side of the prime minister returning to office, perhaps with a reduced majority in the parliament, <laughs> uh, which will tie his hands a little bit. Um, but, you know, the Indian electorate is quite amazing. Uh, you know, in, in India, to to, all you need to do is to be 18 and you're a voter. You don't have to all of this registration stuff. Yeah. It has a far better franchise than the United States. <laughs> I wish we could have that system here. It makes all the sense in the world. But we're not going to have it during the present times. Um, and uh, the Indian electorate in its wisdom uh, can throw people out on the drop of a hat um, and has done. Uh, with great surprise to everybody else. So I, I never make definite predictions about <laughs> Indian elections. It's, 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 it's a very dangerous thing to do. When you look at, at the last few years for India, what has it been that this government has done to really try and drive the growth that, that it probably needs to see in the next 10 to 20 years? Well, most importantly, in the past four and a half years, this the Modi government has greatly reduced regulations uh, insofar as the federal government or central government in India can do. Because remember that India, like ours, is a federal system. Right. And you have 29 states uh, and, and a several territories that, that just don't do your bidding, right? And... Um, so you, when you, this uh, deregulation push has to extend down into uh, to ultimately to the state levels and the and the local levels, and so it's but it's still never an important initiative. Secondly, he has invested a lot of money in particularly in transportation infrastructure, particularly in roads. I was in India in January, and part of India I haven't been in for ten years. And I was amazed at, at, where, at where the roads go. The, the third thing is that he has uh, uh, 
up till now, he has conducted India's macroeconomic policy with continuing attention to the twin deficits, uh, to both the trade deficit and or the current account deficit more broadly, and more importantly for India, the Indian fiscal deficit, and been pretty uh, strict about keeping it certainly below 4%. Now we read that the Modi government is attempting to influence the Reserve Bank of India right. uh, to, in fact, lower its rates and in other ways um, lessen its standards for bank lending in the hope that that'll give a boost to the economy. By the way, this is, a, this is something that tells us that the prime minister and his key lieutenants, political lieutenants, are concerned about this election. Right, right. He wouldn't be risking his international reputation and a further drop in the rupee, which has dropped now, what, 30 percent in the last couple of months? Um, if he didn't feel it was really he needed some, another boost on the economic front to get reelected. So that's that's where I think things are right now. We mentioned at the top your work uh, with the Center for Advanced Study of India. Uh, what are, are some of the projects that you're doing over there uh, currently, and how do they potentially fit into this burgeoning relationship between the United States and India? Sure. Um, well, first, let me say generally that the CASI, as we call it, the Center for the Advanced Study of India, is an absolutely unique institution, entity, not only within Penn, um, but also, frankly, among all U.S. universities, in that it is the only university-based center devoted exclusively to research, high-quality social science research on on India's politics, economy, society, and international relations. Uh, and furthermore, it conducts that research, selects and conducts that research in a way that's m attentive to India's policy environment. What are the things that can be helpful? So over the years, for instance, India's done a lot of work on Dalit entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. path-breaking work uh, that nobody else had done to help develop an entrepreneurial culture for for Dalits, uh, that used to be called untouchables or harjans. Um, it's done a lot of work on migration within India and between India and the world. And our former director at Cassie, Devish Kapoor, uh, just gave a very, very uh, 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 important speech to the Reserve Bank of India on the impact of migration on the Indian economy. It's done a lot of, it's doing work now on agriculture and the agricultural economy because India's agricultural sector is now the centerpiece of its poverty problem. Uh, somewhere between 50 and 60 percent of India's poor are farmers. Uh, the average holding size is about two acres, believe it or not. I think the average holding size in the United States of American farmers is something like a thousand acres. Um, so we, a lot of policy-related work that Cassie's carried out and very uniquely. Part of a larger, now happy, happily in a larger pen push on India. Yeah. But this is the only part of India that, of the can that produces research that's directly relevant to today's problems in India. Great having you here today, Marshall. Thank you very much for your time. Delighted to be here. Thank, Thank you, McCool. You. Thank you for coming over. Thanks very much, Dan. Marshall Bhutan, Director of the Center for Advanced Study of India, based here at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you very much for him stopping by, and also to uh, Mukul Pandev, who is the uh, Editor-in-Chief of Knowledge at Wharton. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.